We hope you enjoy this message recorded at Equipus Church in Eden. For more information, please visit equipuschurch.com. Maybe give the person beside you a fist pump or a high five, or if you think they're really pretty, maybe swipe right, whatever you need to do. Just trying to help some single people out. Sort of like a bit of a mission. Hello, Moz Girl. Trust that you guys are all there in the metropolis, the great metropolis of Mosgill. Everyone, it's a tourist attraction. The South Island or something like that. So it's good to have you all here this morning. Awesome to be here. We had a fantastic time at the uh, men's conference. How many men were at the men's conference? And so some of them will be uh, aching today after all the sport they were playing yesterday afternoon. But it was fantastic to get men together and uh, just encourage them. It was, a, it was my privilege to be able to speak and my privilege to be with you guys uh, today. You've got a great church. This is great. You're a, you're a phenomenal, you're a phenomenal praise leader. You did an incredible job. Like, you're like bouncing around, coordinated and stuff. All us white people are just fascinated by it. Just like, just... On my DNA, I, I'm 51.9% uh, uh, British, uh, Welsh, Scottish, or Irish, and 49.9% uh, English. Uh, it's my DNA. I'm like the whitest person you've ever met in your whole life. I'm, I'm almost translucent. I'm so white. That's, so that just proves that I could not come to your gala and dance. You dance brilliantly. Uh, <laughs> Compared, compared to me, uh, probably the most uncoordinated person uh, on the planet. Or uh, having said that, uh, black people usually write uh, songs and music for white people so we can dance. Any song uh, with a direction in it uh, was written for white people so we can dance, you know. And so, you know, to the left, to the left. We couldn't do, white people couldn't do that naturally without without direction. So anyway, but great to be in the house of God. I'd love it if you grab your Bible. Let's get there uh, quickly. Matthew chapter 18. Do we have a countdown clock somewhere? Or It's hidden between the bright lights. Okay. So if every now and then you just see me walk off, Mosgill people, you see me walking down, I can't, there's no way I can see that. I'll just guess. What time have you finished? Oh, boom. There it is. That is fantastic. Awesome. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. I'm not, I'm not saying that for any other reason other than I'm, I'm bound to get hungry eventually. And so it's going to need to know when lunch is. So that's cool. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 says this. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now Jesus is telling a parable and so everything in the parable is deliberate. It's orchestrated by design. It's not accidental. And so this number 10,000 talents is not an accident. It's not like just an amount. The number 10,000 back then was like the largest number. This was like considered a mind-blowing number. And so he was using this number 10,000 for impact. He wanted the people to be like, whoa, that's huge. And so I'm not sure if you have a number like that in your family that you use when you're just trying to up somebody else. My, my daughter, I love you, I love you more. And then we use the word kajillion. That, that's the number we use. I love you, kajillion. And you can't top kajillion. It's the mind-blowing number. And then the talent, the talent was the largest weight 
that they would use when measuring out either gold, silver, or bronze. And so there's this huge amount that he's talking about here. Bible says he was not able to pay and his master commanded that he be sold, his wife, children, all that he had and payment be made. Now, it was normal that if you were in debt and you couldn't pay the debt, that you went to prison. We took you as payment for the debt. In this scenario, he says, I'll have you, I'll have your, your wife, we're gonna have your children, everything you've got to pay the debt. Now, it's a large debt. The talent was equivalent to about 20 years salary to the average worker. This guy is 200,000 years of wages in debt. I just made somebody feel a lot better about their credit card bill right now. <laughs> See, it's not that bad after all, Phil. You know, <laughs> the servant therefore fell down before him uh, saying, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. The master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Here's a contrast. The denarii is equivalent to about a day's salary. So this guy's about a third of a year in debt. Now, if that was a $45,000 a year wage, then that's about $15,000. So if somebody owed you $15,000, it's not like a small amount. It's not, it's not insignificant. It's still, it's still quite significant. But in contrast to what he's just been forgiven, this is an insignificant amount of money. And you anticipate that he is gonna forgive this debt. It says he laid hands on him, took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. There are two players in this parable. You have a king, you have a servant. You have the king who has the money and the mindset, the resources, that when asked to forgive this huge debt, was able to have compassion, cut the check, pay the bill. Then you've got the servant who didn't have the money or the mindset and was asked the exact same thing he asked. Please be patient with me and I will pay you all. Now, it was impossible when he asked the question because he didn't have enough time to pay 200,000 years of debt. It actually was possible, a third of a year of debt, for the other man to pay the debt, but he would not have compassion. He would not respond the same way. And so he would not forgive the debt and through him. There's two players. If you could take the king, let's call him the cajillionaire, and the, the servant, let's call him you know, the miser, if you could take those, those names out and place your name in. If Jesus was talking about two people and you happen to be one of those people, which one would you wanna be featuring in Jesus' parable? Well, I don't know about you, I wanna be the cajillionaire. Anybody else in the house wanna be that guy uh, rather than the miser? That, that requires an answer. There's a question. See the yes or no. Anybody wanna be the cajillionaire? Yes, yes, yes. yes. If you're, not, if you're not sure, the answer is yes. Just, you wanna be that guy. And so I wanna talk a little bit about that this morning. I wanna talk about how to develop that, that cajillionaire mindset. We don't always just arrive there. Sometimes it's a journey. I wanna talk a little bit about how to develop the cajillionaire mindset. But before we do that, let's just pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive and powerful. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword and able to get into areas of our life where nothing else can penetrate and bring supernatural change. We thank you that your word uh, reads us often more than we read it. We thank you as Holy Spirit, you breathed on the author. Lord God, Matthew, I thank you that you would breathe on me today as I preach this word. And God, I pray more than anything as you hover over us. Oh Jesus, please, God, help me not to be boring. And God, I pray for the people that are here this morning. Oh God, please help them not to be boring either because that's always really horrible in Jesus' name. And everyone said, <laughs> have you ever been asked a question? And uh, when, when you were asked that question, can somebody open that? Because I got a microphone in my hand. Ready? Good man. Uh, when you were asked that question, terrified to answer because you felt like it had an agenda. Anybody ever like, like that? not really. My, my daughter will do that all the time to me. She'll be like, hey, Dad, uh, can you do me a favor? I'll get a text message. Hey, Dad, can you do me a favor? Now, I, actually, I want to answer yes. Of course, but I'm terrified to get just yes because I want to know what's the favor. Like what's, what's behind? Now, my wife is the, 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 the queen of the question with the agenda. It'll be late at night, just climb into bed, you know, lights will be out, uh, just crawl under the sheets, just roll over and look. And I just look at her incredibly gorgeous face and she'll just look back at me and just with her soft, beautiful voice, she'll just whisper softly, babe, are you thinking about going upstairs to get yourself a drink? <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, wasn't actually thinking about that. But Why? And she'll go, oh, I just thought while you're up there that you could get me a drink while you're there. Anybody ever been asked a question with an agenda? <laughs> Matthew chapter 18 features two questions. Both of them have an agenda. The first kicks off the chapter and launches the context of everything Jesus is about to speak about. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask this question, Jesus, who's gonna be greatest in your kingdom? Who's gonna, ha who's gonna have greatness? Where's the authority? Who's gonna have the power? Who's going, to, who's going to be the man in your and, and And their concept of kingdom comes from a very different vantage point than ours. When they're asking this question, they have no clue of a cross. They have no clue of a resurrection. They have no idea of a baptism of the Holy Spirit or an ascension. They have no idea of the birthing of the church. In their mindset, Messiah will come. He'll create a political revolution. They'll overthrow the Roman government and then they'll rule and reign on earth. That's what they're anticipating. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so what they're pretty much saying is, Jesus, when it all goes down and we, you know, we take over and you're like Messiah, obviously you're gonna need some, you're gonna need some role buddies, some henchmen. You're gonna need some people on the right and on the left. You're gonna need like a vice Messiah or like a, like a deputy of salvation or something like that. You're gonna need some... You know, some people in your cabinet carrying some authority and we just want to know, how do we get that job? How do we get authority in your kingdom? How, how do we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? How do we get that power? And that Jesus grabs a little child and brings the child and stands the child in the midst. Now, the things Jesus is about to say is not on how we should treat children. The context is not, Hey, Jesus, tell us how we should treat kids. The child 
is a, a sermon illustration. The child is an object lesson. Now you can teach the Scriptures probably on how to handle children, but it's not about children. The child is the object lesson. And so he brings the child in the middle, sits them down. Now he does this deliberately because in that day, little Johnny wasn't cute. It wasn't for cute effect or, oh, look at it. No, this child had no value. They didn't count them in the numbers, had no value. So he brings a child in the midst and then Jesus in the context of how do we have kingdom authority just starts dropping bombs. In verse three, he says, you need to repent and you need to come into the kingdom like this little child if you wanna have authority. In verse four, he says, if you humble yourself like this little child, you're gonna be great in the kingdom of God. In verse five, he says, how you treat others is exactly how you treat me. It's a reflection. In verse six, he says, if you take advantage of people, when they've got that humility and that innocence of this little child, then you are in deep yogurt. Verse seven to nine, he says, beware of offences and try not to offend anybody. In other words, children, I want you people to play nicely. In verse 10 to 11, he says, don't treat each other arrogantly. In verse 12 to 14, he says, lost people matter to me. You're all valuable. I'll leave the 99 and go chase after the one because everybody matters in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 15, he says, but if your brother does sin against you, she says, try not to hurt anybody. Try not to rip anybody off. Try not to disappoint people. Try not, try not to offend people. Try not, but, but, but if you do get offended, if you do get hurt, if you do get let down, if you do get disappointed, if somebody hurts you in some way, he says, then you've got a responsibility as the hurt party to work it out. How do you get authority? When you get offended, you work it out. How do you get authority? When you get hurt, you work it out. How do you get authority? When you get wounded, he says, you've got a responsibility to go to them. And so he says, you just go to them building a bridge. First thing, you talk to them about it and you try to reconcile it. If that doesn't work, he says, take somebody with you and you guys try to work it out. And if that doesn't work, then get the church leadership involved. If that doesn't work, have another shot. And if that doesn't work, then disconnect. Bible says that you're not gonna get on with everybody, but as far as it depends on you, it says, be at peace with all men. You have spiritual authority comes. Our, our churches lack authority because we don't handle conflict well. Churches lack authority because we don't handle, you know, uh, being offended well. We get offended and we walk out and we blame God and says, God told me to leave, which is Christian for I'm offended and I won't work it out and I'm out. Listen, I've been, I've been doing this thing a long time and, and I would be the first to admit, I know God calls people to leave churches and move. I understand that. But I would say to you about 95% of the time that people have had those conversations with me, it's never about God calling them to move. It's about passive aggressive, failing to handle the offence, you know, the, the hurt, the disappointment and rather than deal with it and confront it and have authority, they just bolt and it leads them to a life. Now, now here's the challenge. I'm not sure that there's a more easily offendable generation in church than right now. It's terrifying. You know how easily offended we are? I was in a church in Canada a couple of months ago and I made that comment. 
we're the most easily offendable generation on the planet. The young guy come up to the pastor at the end of the service and said, Pastor, I was really offended today <laughs> when he said that they were the most easily offendable generation on the planet. I thought, I wish you said that to me. You're now a sermon illustration, young man. <laughs> but it's terrifying, terrifying to be a preacher. I probably already offended somebody. I'm not even trying. If I gave it a shot, I'm pretty sure I could be convinced I could do it easily. But it's terrifying as a preacher in Chicago. They are so politically correct that if I do some foreign accent in my message, they delete that part out of the podcast so no one would listen to it and be offended. I'm an Australian. I live in America. There's probably not a week that goes by that someone doesn't try to do an Australian accent. People all the time coming up, good day, mate, hey, go on, chuck another shrimp on the bubba, you know. <laughs> and not once have I ever responded with, <sighs> you're trying to sound like me? Not once. I've usually responded with, because <laughs> that's the natural response. Oh, it's terrifying. I've offended people for stuff I didn't even say. As one girl really angry, writes me an email, and, uh, and she did the right thing. She wrote an email, and she said, uh, I was really offended on Sunday uh, when you said that Peter denied Jesus like a little girl. And she sent me these clippings on Fight Like a Girl and all these things about girls being real people too or something. And, uh, and I live in a sea of estrogen. I'm married and have three daughters. So uh, I have no sons. And, uh, and so I, I wrote back and said, thank you for your letter. It's really, your email is really cool. I said, having said that, usually I offend people by stuff I say. In your case, I never said it. I never said Jesus, uh, Peter denied Jesus like a little girl. I said, Peter denied Jesus to a little girl, which is actually what happened. That's what happened. And a very different context than what you're hearing. You're hearing something based on your filter. I realized once how, how, how uh, much the filter controls what you hear I say by the things people tweet that I say. They'll quote me and I'm like, I've never said that. Ever. It's like, but it's, they, they hear it like that. Your filter can offend you. She was offended by her own filter. She wasn't offended by me. She was offended by what she thought I said by her own. Does that make sense? And, and, and if she hadn't asked the question, she would have always hated me and think I've got this thing against girls because of her filter. She would have lived on an assumption that created a lie in her head. Filters are powerful. I, I was preaching in Minneapolis and it was Super Bowl Sunday. I was preaching about American football. I love games of violent violence. Mindless violence is the way I'm wired. And so I don't really love baseball. Baseball is like cricket on Prozac. And so <laughs> I don't like cricket. And it's just nine innings and you score a point. So I'm like, gosh. And, uh, and so, so, I, so I'm saying, here's what I think would make baseball exciting. If not all the time, because you've got the fielder. The fielder's out there in the field. Oh, Lord, what am I doing? And every now and then a ball comes at him and he just, he's got these huge gloves. And, we'll, and you're out. It's just so easy. And so I'm thinking, why don't you make it harder for the fielder? 
So every now and then, not every shot, be boring. But it's three or four times a game where you don't know it's about to happen. That the coach could be in the dugout, he could just hit a button. Coach is in the dugout, hits a button. Dugout, boom, hits a button and releases pit bulls. <laughs> you have like three or four pit bulls charging out of the dugout, chasing the ball. And now the fielder's out there and he's like scurrying to try to get away from the pit bulls that are going for the ball. He's trying to go for the ball and then maybe set the pit bulls on fire. So you've got like flaming pit bulls. Anything more scary than a pit bull coming at you on fire? Be just like awesome. And so this woman writes me this email. She is so angry. She wants to report me to Peter for cruelty to pit bulls. And so we check out her Facebook page and she's an animal lover specifically a dog lover. Every post in her Facebook page is her and a dog. She's like there with a chihuahua, <laughs> there with a sausage dog, you know, she's got, she's got all these pictures of her. With it. And so all she sees is me being cruel to dogs, not baseball. Totally misses the joke. So I wrote back and said, ma'am, I'm so sorry I offended you, but can I assure you that no pit bulls were actually injured? in my joke. <laughs> and I didn't have time to tell you this before I told my joke, but uh, I had strategically dressed all the pit bulls up in fireproof suits. <laughs> so they wouldn't receive a burn in my joke. So rest assured that all the pit bulls survived and they're all doing good now. You can, you can. But, but her, her, her filter, does, does that make sense? Yeah. So actually sometimes you can be offended by yourself, from yourself. You, you're gonna be angry at you. And so then Jesus goes on and He says that when you can create reconciliation, when you go and work it out, it actually creates kingdom authority. In verse 18, He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree, you get into agreement on earth concerning anything that they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together, in unity, in my name, I am there in the midst. God says, I hang out when you can develop reconciliation. So here he is talking about, you know, authority and power. And then he goes into this thing. You've got to learn how to forgive. You've got to learn how to reconcile. You've got to learn how to be less easily offended. But when you are offended, when you are hurt, that you take the authority to go back and try to restore that brokenness of relationship. You've got to learn how to forgive. And then that leads us to the second question with the agenda. In the context of that, Peter comes out and asks a question. Well, then how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem like a question with an agenda. But in context and an environment, totally loaded. Totally loaded. In their day, the, Pharisees, uh, the, the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the, the teachers of the day, they would teach uh, generous forgiveness is three times. If I forgave you three times for the same offence, then I'm being generous towards you. Three strikes and then you're out. As from, from like an obscure scripture in the Old Testament, they developed that, that teaching. So in their day, I'm gonna be really generous 
three times. So Peter's doubled that and added tax. Seven times. Because here's the question. How do we get kingdom authority? How do we become great? Jesus teaches on forgiveness. And so Peter comes out with his statement with his own answer. Well, then how many times should we forgive? I'm suggesting, this is how I think Peter thought it was gonna go down. Okay, guys, uh, gather around, gentlemen, gather around. Okay, Jesus is talking about forgiveness and talking about reconciliation and stuff. And look and learn, gentlemen. Look and learn. This is how it's done. Just watch this. Um, Jesus... uh, the subject of forgiveness, uh, I'd like to ask you a question and then I'd like to answer my own question. <laughs> How many times then we, should we forgive? I'm thinking, I'm rolling out a number. I'm not sure what you're thinking, but I'm thinking when I'm thinking about great and I'm thinking about forgiveness, I'm just gonna roll it out. I'm gonna throw this at you, throw it against the wall, see how it goes. I'm thinking seven times. <laughs> he just drops the mic. And I think that he anticipated that Jesus would hear that and go, yea, verily and therefore, Peter, and yea, again, I say yea, even I, the Lord, would saith unto thou, that blowest my mind. I'm talking about forgiveness and I'm thinking maybe three times, stretch it to four, but you just come rolling out with that number without any warning, without any backup. You just drop it from the sky like that seven times. Peter, my brain, you bloweth my skull from my face. I think he was sort of like, thinking that that was going to happen. But then Jesus answered with like, eh, wrong answer. Uh, why, don't, why don't we give a shot at uh, 70 times 7? Why don't we just try with an unlimited amount of, of forgiveness? And then he says, there was a king who had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. He goes into the parable about forgiveness. And in the parable lies out keys for us. You know, Jesus would never ask us to do something he wouldn't do himself. He wouldn't ask us to forgive if he wasn't willing to forgive. When Jesus was on the cross, they threw everything at him. They'd beat him with their fist. They'd ripped handfuls of hair, tore it out of his face from his beard. They'd scourged him within inches of his life with a whip. They spat on him, made a crown of thorns and rammed it into his head to mock him. They'd wrapped his wounds with cloth and then tore them again, laid the cross on his back, make him walk up Golgotha. They, they put nails in his hands, nailed in his feet, hung him up on the cross naked. There was no loin, he was naked. His body just stretching down, crushing his ribcage. They walked past, mocked him, hung an accusation over his head, spat at him, jeered at him, called him all sorts of names. And when they threw everything that they could possibly throw at him, Jesus looked down and made this statement. He said, Father, please forgive them for they, they, they know not what they do. First thing, if you're gonna get the Kajillionaire mindset, you need to learn how to receive the promise. Jesus didn't go to the cross for his sin. He didn't die because he needed forgiveness. Jesus went to the cross for our sin. You've got to learn how to receive that forgiveness. Jesus died for all your sin, past, present, and future. And often we struggle to be able to walk in total forgiveness of all the messes that we've made 
because we somehow think we still need to pay that debt to God. But this man was forgiven all of his debt, 200,000 years of debt. That the king cut the check for everything. He didn't come and say to the guy, look, I'll spot you 199,000 years, but I think it's only fair if you still owe me 1,000. And, and the guy that was forgiven didn't go, whoa, that's, too, that's an overkill. 200,000 years of debt. Maybe, maybe I should still hold some and pay you back. No, the king cut the check for everything and the, the, the servant was willing to forgive, give the, receive the whole lot. And that's like us. Jesus forgave you when you came to God and you said, God, please forgive me of my sin. God forgave you of his sin. Everything from yesterday, today and tomorrow. You are debt free. You are snow white. You are pure. You are clean. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And some of you have got to let go of some of the stuff that you hold from your past, still condemning yourself, still carrying. You need to lift your head up. You need to lift your eyes high. You need to say, I'm a child of God. I'm I'm a son, I'm a daughter of God. And if you've never prayed that prayer, in just a few minutes, minutes when, we, when we wrap up this service, we're gonna give you an opportunity for the first time to get a brand new start in God. That's the greatest thing that we can have. There may be nobody here today that needs that, but if you need that, then you're a VIP here today. And every service, we wanna give people an opportunity for a fresh start because that's what Christianity is all about. It's about a fresh start. It's about a new beginning. It's about all the old being passed away and everything become new. It's standing right before God. And you need to learn how to receive that promise. Here's the challenge. Really hard to forgive somebody else if you've not even started forgiving yourself. Jesus said, you need to love your neighbour as you. So really hard to love other people unless you can fall in love with you. And it starts falling in love with God who helps us fall in love with us, who helps us love the world around us. So it starts with being forgiven by God and then forgiving ourself and then forgiving the world around us. You've got to learn how to receive the promise. Second thing that you've got to learn how to do is reciprocate the privilege. Because here is the, here is the, the kick in the parable. When, when you read it and you hear this guy has just been forgiven all this debt, most of us logically go, and you couldn't even forgive the third of a year? It just seems so wrong. The natural anticipation of the parable is the guy that's just said, please forgive me. Please, you know, have some pay. And he's forgiven all of his debt. You, 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 would, you would think that he would go out and just forgive everybody. But that doesn't happen. And that's the key of the parable. You, Jesus says, I anticipate that you will reciprocate the privilege. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. To make that statement, it was a no-brainer. He'd already forgiven. He didn't go, Father, I forgive them so you can. It was like, this is a no-brainer. We're good here. I've forgiven these men. They, they have no idea what they're, I, I, I forget, I, I've written this thing out 70 times seven in a day. You gotta learn how to reciprocate the privilege. And so we anticipate that the forgiven servant would do that and he doesn't do that and he should do that and you are the forgiven servant and you should do that. When somebody hurts us, when somebody, somebody does something to us, there's a feeling like they've taken something from us and they needed to give it back. And forgiveness says, you can't pay it back, but it needs to be paid back. So I cut the check and pay it for you. 
I, I, I understand that what you took from me, you can't give it back to me. I don't need you to. I'm a child of God. When, when somebody does something to you where, where they, they take your joy, you're angry. I was happy until you did that. I was doing good, but now I struggle with depression. I struggle with anxiety, but all these things going down. You rob my joy. When you don't forgive, you're like, I, I, you've got to give that back to me. What forgiveness does is it doesn't say, well, it doesn't matter and it didn't hurt and it doesn't ignore it. It faces what happens head on. And you just make a statement that says this, they took my joy, they can't give me my joy back. They have no ability to give back what they took from me. But here's the good news. I don't need them to give it back. It's like the king looked at the servant and said, you have no ability to give back to me what you took from me. But the good news is, dude, I don't need you to do that. I've got enough resource. I can cut the check and I can pay the debt. And so what forgiveness does, it says, you can't give me my joy back, but I don't need you to give me my joy back. I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of God. And there's enough resource in heaven to pay the debt from what you took from me. And so even though you stole my joy, I get my joy from heaven in His presence. The Bible says there is fullness and there is joy. I have sown in tears, but I will reap in joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. I've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. I can draw up joy from the wells of my salvation. I don't need you to give me my joy back because if you rob me of my joy, I can cut the check and I can pay the bill and I can get my joy from heaven. If you did something to me and you stole my purity, you can't give me my purity back. And I don't need you to get my purity back because I can get my purity from heaven. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Although things were like as red as scarlet, God will make everything as white as snow. You took my peace, but I don't need you to give me my peace back because I get my peace from heaven and my God shall supply, give me peace. You know, He shall keep me in perfect peace if my mind is stayed on Him. I can get a peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that can keep my heart and mind in the knowledge of Him. I don't need you to give me my peace back because I can draw my peace from heaven. I can cut the check and I can move on. If you rob me of my past, I don't need you to give that back to me because I've got a God that will give me a brand new future. All the new creation, the old has passed away. And if you took my love and trust, I'm accepted in the beloved. Listen, no matter what they take from you, no matter what they rob from you, my God, shall supply all your need. Not according to your need, according to His riches. So it doesn't matter how much they robbed you. You've got a bank account in heaven that you can reach into and you can cut the check. And the Bible teaches us that the borrower is servant to the lender. In other words, whoever pays wins. And so while they may have robbed from you and, and, and destroyed you up to this point, as soon as you cut the check and as soon as you pay the bill, you take authority over the situation. You say in your spirit, you don't control me anymore. You don't dominate me anymore. I'm no longer a victim. I've got victory. I'm no longer under your influence. I step out. I take authority. I take power. I take dominion. 
That's what forgiveness is about. And it's not an optional extra. This is not like an op, this is not, Jesus taught us to pray, Father, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. The only bit in the prayer he repeats, the only bit in the prayer where he amens and he goes back and says, look, I gotta make sure you get that. Because I know you're gonna struggle to forgive. I know it's a battle. I know it's our natural inclination to go, no, I will not forgive, I will not let go. And Jesus says, not an optional extra. And when you engage forgiveness, you get authority. Jesus is not like, I just want you to let that other person go scot-free. No, He said, I want you to let you go. I want to set you free. I want you to break the contract of that domination over your life and get over that and move on. Go learn how to reciprocate the privilege. Then the third thing is the thing I think we struggle with most is learning how to reconfigure the judgment. Because what do we do next? What's the right thing to do? Reconfiguring the judgment. In this parable, I didn't read it, but it goes on. And when he throws the guy in jail for the small debt he is owed, the king hears about it and then throws him in jail, not because of the debt he owed, but because of the lack of righteousness and lack of judgment he did to the other guy. So he says like, I forgave you, but I, I, I can't trust you. Our challenge with forgiveness is, okay, then if I, if I forgive that person, what, what next? Jesus says, Father, Father, forgive them. The New Testament teaches us, you forgive and leave the vengeance to God. You forgive and let God do the judging. You forgive and let God bring down the hammer if He wants to. When I, when I was a, a, a young pastor, just starting out, I was in Manukau City, uh, our first church, and uh, uh, this is probably not a thing that I'd recommend anybody does, but uh, I'm glad I did it because it gives me a funny story. But there's a guy in my church when we were in Manukau that was just a, a horrible little man, and anyway, and he was always talking smack about us. And every time I heard a rumour, uh, his name was attached to it. And all these stories and accusations and rumours, and I just got jack of it one day. So I called him. I said, hey man, how are you doing? And he felt a little bit awkward as people do when they know they've been talking bad about you and you call them. And, Good, why? I said, are you healthy? He goes, yeah, why? No, no diseases, nothing happened, you're all good. Let's check and make sure that you're all good. You know, like, no, I'm, I'm all good. I said, okay, cool. I said, no big thing, but I, I, I just hear all these rumours and stuff and they always seem to come with your name attached as the address where they came from. And maybe you've said nothing, you know, and then it's all cool. I'm sorry for the phone call, but I'm calling you because I, I'm getting tired of it. And I went to God and I told God, I'm not gonna get angry, I've forgiven you. But, but he says judgment is his. And so I said, God, I'll let you have vengeance. I'll let you have judgment. And I said, I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, oh my gosh, if I was God, I'd probably smite you with boils. <laughs> so I started getting worried about your health. Maybe, maybe you're sick or something. Like you can't talk smack about the church and you can't punch God's bride and not have some consequence. And, and so I, I said, you've been to the doctor? You've had a checkup? He's like, no. 
oh, dude, I'd do that in a hurry. Like, if I was you, you need to book that today. <laughs> I don't recommend you do that, but man, that was a lot of fun. But that's what the Bible says. God says, leave, leave me the judgment. Why? Because God's the righteous judge. And, he, and he's like, I know what to do next when you may not know what to do. So once you forgive, you can apply, you can apply judgment without vengeance. So it's not like, I want you to pay because I'm angry. It's like, no, we're gonna do the right judgment here because I'm free. So, so reconfiguring the judgment is like, what? now I've forgiven that person, what's the next step? Should I trust them? And, and, and trust and forgiveness are two different gigs. Forgiveness comes free, trust you have to earn. And if you've broken my trust, I can forgive you what you did, but I may never trust you again. You have to earn that back. You have to gain my trust back. So if you did something to me when I was little, I don't have to let you anywhere near my kids. In fact, I may never trust you with my children. Keep away from my family. I can forgive you, never let you back into my world because I don't trust you. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we as Christians, we forgive and then we open ourselves up to the same hurt. But you can create a barrier. Jesus and His Father forgive them. In other words, we're done here. Let's just move on. But you forgive them. I, I, we don't need anything more. There's no, no more judgment needed. We're done. And sometimes forgiveness is like that. It's a small thing. We're done here. We can move on. There needs to be, I, I can trust you. We can, move, we can have a relationship. But then there are things where actually judgment needs to take place. And, and this is where you need wisdom. And I would suggest to you that, 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 that you need to get counsel on this. Because if you sexually abused me when I was little, and I forgive you, I'm not gonna be under your, under your fear anymore. I'm not gonna be under the shame you created, the brokenness you created for me. You robbed something from me. You can't give it back. I get it back from heaven. I get whole, we're done. I may never talk to you again, but we're just done. I've forgiven you. You're not, you're not holding me in that contract any longer. But then I reconfigure the judgment. I have to ask myself, could you do that to somebody else? Is there a chance that you could abuse another child? If that be the case, then I have responsibility to deal with that. That's when you step out and you call the police. Now, now the reason I'm telling you, before you make that call, get counsel, because that could open up a whole cluster fudge of nastiness over your life, that if you're not in an emotional state, you may not be ready to cope with that. And so you need help, you need, you need support, you can't do it on your own. But I would tell you in a heartbeat, if that person has a possibility to do that to somebody else, when you get the forgiveness and you get the authority, get some help, step out of the corner and you say, that's never gonna happen to anybody. I will not allow you to do that. I will not allow you to take from anybody else what you took from me. And now you're not judging them with like, I teach you a lesson and you pay. Does that make sense? Because that's what lack of forgiveness does. And then you get nowhere. You don't get any freedom. You're still as hurt as you ever were. Now, when you back out and go, we're good here, I'm done, I'm moving on, but you'll never do that. To that that's, the, that's the authority. How do you get authority? That's how you get kingdom authority. Does that make sense? You follow me? And so some of you may need to do that. You may need to trust, you know, never trust again or, or get it out. Whatever it is, you've got to get counsel on how to get that, that judgment. And last thought, as somebody comes and plays something on the keyboard behind me, So fantastic. Good job. What key will you be playing in? 
These guys are geniuses. I was preaching in D, and uh, <laughs> fourth and last thought before we pray is you've got to learn how to repurpose the pain. Learn how to repurpose the pain. Jesus made this comment. He says, Father, uh, forgive them because they, 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 they don't know what they're doing. The truth was they did. It wasn't like they accidentally crucified Him. It wasn't like, they, hey, what are we going to do today, guys? Oh, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, why don't we find somebody like a Saviour or something? Kill him. How should we do that? Oh, why don't we Google it? Crucifixion sounds good. <laughs> no, they, they knew exactly. They, 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 were, they were doing this as a, they were skilled executioners. When, when they whipped him, they did it deliberately. When they beat him, they did it deliberately. Everything was an action. They knew exactly what they were doing. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. We're moving on. Because they actually think they're killing me, but they don't realise they're actually setting me up for my destiny. Now, never at any point did Jesus say, Father, forgive them, because it's actually okay. I'm cool with this. doesn't even hurt. Like, I like the nails. It's a good touch. No, at no point was He saying, this is okay. At no point was He saying, this doesn't hurt. The Bible actually says, who for the joy that was set before Him was able to endure, not enjoy, endure the pain, endure the cross, got through it. Like, I don't like this. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, He wasn't looking forward to it. If anybody else can do it, let them do it. Nevertheless, not my will. In other words, I don't really want to be crucified, but I will because I know what's coming at the other side. And so I'll endure the pain. I I, I will cope with the trauma because I know at the other side of everything, there are some people in Dunedin and Bosgill that'll get saved because of my pain. I know there's something bigger coming out of this. So it says, Father, forgive them because they think they're destroying me, but they're actually setting me up for my destiny. He's able to repurpose the pain. He, he didn't say my story is good. He just said, my story can help somebody else. In the Old Testament, there's a, a young man by the name of Joseph. He's 17 years of age. He's a sport brat. Dad favours him more than his other brothers and not even secretly. He doesn't like secretly walk up to him and go, hey, Joseph, just want to let you know, man, I like you more than your other brothers. You're cool. No, no, he, he, he buys him a Technicolor dream coat, makes it in a world of beige, you know. His brothers are eating Cheerios or rice bubbles and, and he's eating Fruit Loops. Every morning he's just, the man. And his brothers hate him for his dreams and for his jacket. And, and they get this opportunity and they go, let's kill him. And then they go, well, let's not kill him with our own hands. Let's throw him into this pit and let him die in the pit and then he'll die. And the bonus is we didn't even get to touch it with our own hands. So he like died, but we didn't kill him. How I many know this is not a good plan so far? 
But then they see some Midianite traders come past and they're like, this is even better. Let's sell him into slavery. He'll die in slavery and we make money. That's a win-win. And so that's what they do. They, they it technically kill their brother by selling him into slavery. Now decades pass and they're dying of starvation because there's a famine in the land. And so they've got to go to the kingdom, the only kingdom that's got any food in famine and that's Pharaoh's kingdom. And so they make the journey to Pharaoh's kingdom. They don't get to meet with Pharaoh, but they get an appointment with Pharaoh's number two guy, second most powerful man on the planet in their day. About halfway through their conversation as they're trying to navigate, negotiate to get some food so they don't die of starvation, they discover in conversation that this is Joseph, their brother, that they sold into slavery to die. Somehow he managed to make it through and become the second most powerful man in the world. And they instantly think he's going to kill us because that's what we'd do if it was me. That's what they're thinking. He's going to kill us. Joseph, tears running down his face, makes this incredible statement. He says, uh, you meant it for evil. He didn't give him a pass. He didn't go, hey guys, it doesn't matter. It was all good. No, he's like, what you did was messed up. What you did was wrong. I was your little brother. You should have looked after me. You try to kill me? That's evil. What you did was wrong. There's nothing good in any thought that you had. You kill him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. Wrong. You meant it for evil. You had evil intention. You had evil desires. What you did was wrong, but God. But God meant it for good. What you did was wrong, but despite how messed up what you did was, I can see now that if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. And I am here now. And if I wasn't here, you guys would die in starvation. And not only would you die, but nations would die. So I realise that even though I don't like anything you did, because you did it, because it happened, I can't deny that, but actually became the foundation for me to get here. And, and I know I wouldn't be here if that wasn't a part of my story. And so I can use that to bring salvation to you. Now, here's the amazing thing that Joseph didn't know about that you and I know about at this side of the Scripture, that Joseph could have said this. He could have said, Judah, get out of here. Judah, get out here. Stand, stand, Judah, stand there. Judah, what you did was wrong. You're my elder brother, man. You should have had my back. You should have said no to the other guys when they're so jealous. As, as my older brother, you, sh you should have had authority in this. What you did was wrong. But Judah, I, 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 I'm okay. Like I've forgiven you. And I know this is a part of my story now. And I know it was just a building block to get me here. Because Judah, if I died, if, 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 if I wasn't here, Judah, in your loins is the Messiah. Judah, in your loins is Jesus. Judah, if you die in this famine, no one gets saved. No one in this building here today, no one in Mosgiel has salvation if you die. So even though I don't like my story, 
And even though I don't like my pain, I, I realise that I can use it now to bring Jesus to generations that are after me. So the things that you need to deal with and forgive, the things that have happened that try to destroy you when you forgive and you move on. Once you can embrace your pain to go, I, I wish that didn't happen. I'm not glad it happened, but it did. I'm not going, woohoo, glad I went through that. No, no, you never have to get like that, but you just have to go, I did go through it. So now once you get on the other side and it doesn't hurt you anymore, you can use that as a source of victory to talk to somebody who's probably walking through exactly what you'll walk through. And they have no hope. You're sitting beside somebody at school. You're sitting beside somebody at college. You're sitting beside somebody at work. You sit beside somebody at a bus stop somewhere. You sit beside somebody at a sporting event. You're sitting, you're, 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 in your world are people that are going through what you walk through and they have no hope on how to get to the other side. But you've walked through that and you've got to the other side and you can use your victory to bring victory to their situation. You can use your pain and healing to bring healing to their pain. God takes your story, goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. They're actually setting you up for your testimony. The Bible says we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our... Your story has power. Your story has power to help somebody else. And that can only come when you get to the other side. How do you get authority when you get to that point? How do you have kingdom authority when you get so healed and so on the other side that you can actually use everything that was thrown at you to try to destroy you to bring victory to somebody else's life? Never has to mean that at any point you have to say, man, I'm glad I went through that. That was awesome. No, you endured it. You got on the other side and now you use your victory to help somebody. Because it's not always just about you. It's about the world around us. My wife, Anna, her first husband was uh, killed in a car accident on their second wedding anniversary. It was a tragedy, horrible, horrible. He was thrown out of the car. She was in the car. When she came to, she saw her husband of two years on a road killed. That's a part of her story. It was painful. It wasn't good. She had to forgive him for driving home overnight without taking a break. She had to forgive him for a whole heap of things that she felt, the anguish that she was feeling. Does she glad that that happened? No, but it is a part of her story. And even just recently when we were in Hawaii together on a break, there was a girl that she went to college with who'd lost her husband recently in the last 12 months that she was able to sit around a, a coffee table and have a conversation to give hope to somebody who was walking through the exact same pain that she'd walked through 17 years ago. I was married for 20 years when I moved to New Zealand and my wife decided she'd wanna be married to me and live in America or be in ministry and she left and we walked through a divorce and it was probably one of the most painful, not, not probably the most painful experience of my life. Um, I wish I hadn't gone through it as a leader. It was nothing I'd ever seen happening. I never envisaged that I would be, be a, a divorcee, and, 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 but I am. And I don't enjoy having that as a part of my story. I wish it wasn't a part of my story, but it is a part of my story. And I don't want it to be a part, but it is. And, and I found out now how many people I've been able to help. Now, I don't want it. I wish I didn't have to help. I wish I could help them on somebody else's story, but it is mine. 
as a youth leader, I, I coached my three daughters. I become a solo dad and I coached my three daughters through that. And now in youth meetings, I've been able to help other young people who've lost parents. I've been able to coach them and help them through that. I wish it wasn't a part of their story, and, but it is. And now I can, does that make sense? And I wish, I wish Rich hadn't have died uh, so I could get Anna. I wish I hadn't gone through my divorce to get to Anna, but we did. And then God brings hope out of it, brings us together. And now my life is freaking awesome. And so just putting that out there. But, uh, but our stories of pain and hurt, we've been able to use to help other people bring victory. That's what God wants to do with your story. There's victory on the other end of your pain. Let's just pray right now. Father, we just thank You for Your Spirit as the worship team comes. Holy Spirit, that You would just hover over this place. Wrap Your arms around people that are hurting today. Maybe I'm talking to people who need to forgive in this service or in Mosgill. And Oh God, they're so angry at the moment. They don't ever feel like they can get into a position where they can forgive. It's too fresh. It still hurts too much. It's too painful. God, maybe they feel like they can never get to that point. So God, I pray that you'd bring them on a journey and maybe today you can start the healing process. Maybe today could be step one of just heading them in the right direction to get to a point where they can forgive. Where you can give them own, their own revelation of what the Scripture says. and you can Bring your Holy Spirit to them nightly and just heal their hurt. God, one day, soon, that they do the right thing get an authority and reciprocate the privilege. Lord, I pray for those that need wisdom on what's the next step. I've forgiven, what do I do next? And you give them wisdom and counsel on how to reconfigure the judgment. I pray for those that are on the other side of forgiveness and Lord God, that they can start to use their story rather than it be a source of shame and a source of embarrassment and a source of humiliation. But God, it can actually be a source of strength that they can launch off to help the world around them, God, that, that we, can, we can see our friends get saved and lives get healed. And God, You can use our pain to bring victory to somebody else who's going through pain. But more than anything, God, we pray for those that are here or in Mosgill. Lord God, that today, if they need a brand new start in their life and relationship with You, that they could receive the promise. So Holy Spirit, just move on hearts right now. We hope you enjoyed this message recorded at Equippers Church, Dunedin. We pray it blessed you. For more information, please visit equipperschurch.com.